Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Lori Flores, your host for this episode, and I'm very happy to welcome Beth Lou Williams today to talk about her book, The Chinese Must Go, Violence, Exclusion, and the Making of the Alien in America. The book just came out with Harvard University Press in late February of 2018. Beth Lou Williams is Assistant Professor of History at Princeton University. Beth, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me. So Beth and I actually go way back. We went to graduate school together at Stanford. And Beth, I remember you as somebody who really was one of the people who welcomed me into the program and just kind of helped me through it. And um, actually, I think maybe you were the one who invited me to join a dissertation writing group there, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So that was one of my, you know, I was just thinking about that today, that that was something I really valued is being able to show my work to you and some other people in our cohorts um, at Stanford in the history department. And I remember seeing some chapters from you that are now in this book. And it just makes me so happy to be able to hold it in my hands and to interview you about it. Yeah, hopefully it looks a little bit different than when I was writing it as a dissertation. <laughs> In the best way, yes. yes. <laughs> um, so before we get started talking about what's in the book itself, I would love for our listeners to get to know you a little bit more. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, would you kind of just introduce yourself to our audience? Um, where did you grow up? Uh, what was your path to graduate school and to being a historian? Um, and how did you get interested in this subject matter that your book is about? Well, I uh, grew up in California, and um, I had family um, who were Chinese immigrants, um, multiple generations of Chinese um, I eventually figured out dating back to the late 19th century. And so I think that uh, the migration of Chinese to America was always semi-present as I was growing up, um, as I would go to a Chinese New Year banquets in San Francisco and things like that. So when I was a junior in college, I took Asian American history uh, for the first time. I was already a history major, but I had never had the chance to learn about um, this part of my own heritage. And part of one of the assignments for that class was to do an oral history. And uh, that led me to interview my grandfather, who had come over at age nine um, through Angel Island Immigration Station and actually been detained as a child in 1932. And so I heard his story um, as a junior in, in, in college and uh, what turned out to be just a couple weeks before he died. And I think that that 
set me on this path because then um, it, it made me both interested in Chinese immigration and dissatisfied in what I had learned from him that I didn't wasn't able to continue to our conversation about it and that I couldn't fully understand his story. Uh, so I think that that's what started me. But then once I realized that there are so many things about uh, Chinese American history that are still unknown, especially back in the 19th century. So I um, went into graduate school hoping to work on this area that I feel like needs um, where, there, where there's very limited sources. And so it, it takes a lot of digging um, and, and reconstruction of this history to put it all together. Yeah, I saw that your book is dedicated to your grandfather and your acknowledgments are really beautiful. And at the end, um, you mention how old he was, or I guess I should say how young he was when he was detained at Angel Island. And it's such a powerful last line of your acknowledgments that your oldest son is that same age right now. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it means something new to me now that I uh, spend time with a nine-year-old, what it would have would have meant to cross the Pacific Ocean. Um, he was sent for by his his father, who was already in America. And so he crossed the Pacific on his own and then um, faced detention and interrogation. He was on Angel Island for 34 days uh, without family. And so now that I have a nine-year-old, it gives me a completely new perspective on, on what that means. Yeah, I I definitely felt how hard you worked to communicate um, not only the perspective of Chinese actors in this history, but a lot of different people. And we'll get to all those different characters um, that you have in your narrative in a few minutes. Um, but I wanted to start by asking the general question, which is something that a lot of people might be wondering um, as they pick up your book or, or while they're thinking about picking up your book, which is... You know, we may think that we know, at least in brief outlines or sketches, the story of Chinese exclusion. And a lot of us may think we know everything about the Chinese Exclusion Act, that it's pretty clear, cut and dried. Um, but what did you feel was missing in our knowledge and analysis of the Chinese Exclusion Act or the Chinese Exclusion Era that you provide a different look at in your book? Yeah, I think it's, um, I look back on my choice to tackle this um, central question, I think. It's a, a exclusion is such a central question within Asian American history. And perhaps it was not the most obvious thing for a, a graduate student to tackle as a first book, because I think that it is... Um, perhaps the best trodden, most trodden area of Asian American history, Chinese exclusion. And so I do have a, I encounter a lot of people who say, I know what Chinese exclusion is. I know that this was bad, that this was one of the first immigration laws that it um, targeted Chinese and, and kept them out of the country. And that is sort of my impression of it. When I started this project, I started um, my my work started looking at the um, an ins an outbreak of violence really that followed Chinese exclusion. 
So the understanding of the time was Chinese exclusion starts in 1882. And then a few years later, there's this huge outbreak of anti-Chinese violence um, in 1885 and 1886. And in my book, I've counted 165 incidents, or really not incidents, but sites where towns or cities attempt to expel the Chinese. And so when I learned about the violence, it didn't fit for me with my understanding of Chinese exclusion, because if Chinese exclusion was this sort of pinnacle of border control, um, and it, it had been painted as a very successful form of border control, especially in the first few years where scholars had said that only a few dozen Chinese came in the years following uh, 1882. Uh, if it had been so successful, and if uh, people that had wanted to keep the Chinese out, had finally managed to get what they their goal, uh, why was there so much violence right after this, this law? And so that's what, that was the question that I started with. And so I really, the book started and continued to be focused on violence. Um, but what I found pretty quickly was that if we look at that violence, it upends all sorts of assumptions about Chinese exclusion itself. And, and one of the most fundamental is that uh, the Chinese exclusion was meant to exclude. The 1882 law at the time was actually known as the Chinese Restriction Act. And as I looked at it more, I realized that it wasn't this giant um, moment of sudden exclusion, and it wasn't a giant moment of um, states, you know, federal centralization and state building. Instead, it was this sort of uh, weak experiment in which the federal government sort of dipped its toe into trying to manage um, the migration of one group. And it was extremely ineffectual. And that sort of helped to explain to me uh, what the violence meant. The violence was a response in part to this extremely ineffectual first law. I, I took from this, you know, larger, I, I feel like this makes us question larger things about Chinese exclusion as an era in general. I think that it highlights the, the contingency, the fact that that uh, America did not suddenly turn towards federal gatekeeping, and instead it was experimenting and all of these things were not um, set in stone at this early period. The other thing that I feel like my book spends a lot of time on is to focus less on exclusion as um, the creation of simply a border, a physical border. Uh, we often think of exclusion as Angel Island, as that immigration station. And what I discovered when I was following violence uh, instead of the law was that exclusion means something specific for Chinese immigrants. And it and what it means is not contained to that moment of entry, that moment of border control. It is more about how Chinese immigrants are seen within the nation and what their continued status as excluded immigrants means from them once they are were within America. And so that is why I've 
I've sort of recast Chinese exclusion as not a moment of sudden national gatekeeping, but instead of the birth of, of the modern American alien. Yeah, I think your book is doing a lot of different things with what we may feel is a very familiar or like you said, well trodden or uh, well trodden topic. Um, and you also use this different approach, um, which you mentioned in the in the beginning of your book is what you call a transcalar approach. Can you say a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, I I try as much as possible not to invent new terms. And so, but uh, this was a, a significant <laughs> um, aberration for me. What I found was that, um, that my study, you could see it as multiscalar, but I was dissatisfied with that word. What I mean by transcalar is that I'm trying to highlight uh, multiple scales. These are sort of geographic um, scales, the local, the national, um, the transnational. Uh, but instead of seeing these as multiple scales in the study as multiscalar, I'm, I call it transcalar because I want a sense of connection that these, that the book itself and these scales are are constantly um, connected by activities. So, for example, I look at um, anti-Chinese violence, which is something that happens sort of by definition on the local scale. These are individual cities and towns in which um, vigilantes are driving Chinese out of their of their town. Uh, but the effects are not just felt on the local scale. They are also felt on the um, national scale. So locally, it means that the Chinese uh, are forced out of certain neighborhoods. Uh, Chinatowns are wiped out. The sort of racial landscape is, is redrawn. But at the national level, the violence affects immigration law and the way in which the border is um, implemented. And it, in fact, goes beyond that. It crosses the Pacific, and it affects the way in which American diplomats interact um, with, the, with the Chinese. And so I wanted to get a sense of that, that uh, events that we assume to be sort of contained to a single scale have this wide-ranging effect. Right. Yeah. I, I really like that you took the risk of creating this different word to communicate the approach that you were taking. And I do want to talk about um, scales a little bit later on um, in the later chapters of your book. But let's start with your first chapter when you kind of give the readers an introduction to, you know, why did um, particular people want the Chinese out? Or why were they saying the Chinese must go? And one quote that I found um, interesting in your first chapter was um, on page 40, when you say, when it came to the Chinese, Americans did not have complete confidence in white supremacy, especially within the newly acquired US West. White citizens feared the Chinese would not easily be exterminated, assimilated, or subordinated, as were the, quote, vanishing Indians, quote, conquered Hispanics, or, quote, enslaved Africans of the past. Can you talk a little bit more about um, how your first chapter challenges what we think we might know about why exclusionary tendencies were there in the first place? Yes, I think that what I wanted to highlight is that... Um, 
you know, Chinese, like, um, like Mexican Americans, like Native Americans, and and African Americans are facing white supremacy in the late 19th century in America. However, the specific sort of racial stereotypes and racial formations that they face are, are very specific to different groups, and therefore um, have different forms of solutions offered, you know, quote unquote solutions offered by the federal government and by local individuals. So for the Chinese, I think that it's significant that the the way in which they are described is both that they are, you know, racially inferior, that they, you know, unlike a white man, they don't need to eat uh, meat and potatoes, they can subsist merely on rice and rats, uh, that they're inferior in that they... Um, they think all alike, they're um, undifferentiated, they um, are slavish, they'll just answer any master. So there's all these things that say that they are racially inferior and um, not civilized like uh, white people are. However, at the same time, this stereotype uh, is very menacing because there's a feeling that the Chinese, although racially inferior, uh, are are better at some things than white people, that they are able to subsist on less, that they work harder, and that this and that they are um, going to be relentlessly coming to the United States. There's so many Chinese in China, and so there's an, an imagined future invasion by these actually you know strong strong race, and so I think that. That is part of, um, we, we see the effects of that in exclusion because other racial groups at this time in the late 19th century, uh, America is prescribing other sorts of solutions to things like the, uh, the quote unquote Indian problem or the quote unquote Negro pro- problem. Those solutions have, uh, a, at the time, were very much focused on assimilation and that these inferior groups could be, to some extent, um, assimilated and subordinated within American society. And I think that the fact that the Chinese were seen as so dangerous and um, perhaps superior in some ways to white Americans meant that assimilation did not seem like a viable option for this group. Mm, yeah, I I really was... Um very taken with how you try to complicate what we think we might know about why people um, wanted the Chinese out. It wasn't just this story about, you know, taking jobs or being economically threatening. It actually, you know, the threat works both ways. It's about inferiority and a feared superiority or a winning out of um, a race war of some sorts. And you continue this, um, this kind of notion about complicating the story in your second chapter. So um, with the Chinese Restriction Act um, of 1882, this piece of legislation actually creates not just one illicit migrant stream, it actually creates multiple illicit migration streams. And the point you're trying to illustrate here is 
not all the Chinese, like you said, we're thinking alike, we're acting alike, that there is actually a lot of diversity in how people continue to move within and to the U.S., um, even after restriction. Can you talk more about um, those multiple movements? Yes. So when when the Chinese were restricted in 1882, uh, they continued to come. <laughs> and some of them uh, can, decided to come through San Francisco. And when they came through San Francisco, uh, there was enough of a border control apparatus there and that uh, steamships coming into San Francisco, uh, customs officials would meet each steamship and actually interview each Chinese individual coming off of the steamships, for the most part. There was probably still a few that managed to slip beyond them. And so those Chinese that came in through San Francisco mostly tried to talk their way around the Restriction Act. And they did so in several ways. They claimed to be ex- of an exempt status that mean uh, because the Restriction Act only targeted Chinese laborers, new Chinese laborers who had never been in the country before. So sometimes... Chinese would claim to be students, to be merchants, to be diplomats, and these other classes that were not Chinese laborers. But even more common, the Chinese would come in and say, yes, I'm a laborer, um, but I've been in this country before. And at first, the Customs agents had no way to disprove this, that there had not been good enough records earlier to disprove, to prove who had been in the country before and who had not. And so it was a very easy thing to come as, quote, returning um, migrants uh, to, to claim that they had previously been in, in the United States. So this was a this was ripe for fraud. However, I also spend a lot of time looking at the northern border and the um, and specifically in the Pacific Northwest, the border between British Columbia and Canada and Washington Territory. Because at the time, that was the most popular land border for the Chinese to cross, although it was land and sea border because many of them came sort of along the coast. And so Chinese who uh, took steamships up into uh, Victoria, Victoria Island, and then would make their way down into Washington Territory. And they would do so either by, by on foot or uh, by canoe or by ferry. And these uh, Chinese had success without even having to make up fraudulent identities. They often could just simply slip past the customs officials because there were extremely few custom officials on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember in um, an earlier draft I read of, um, I think maybe it was this chapter, you were talking about this really lonely (laughs) (laughs) who has to patrol like hundreds of miles all by himself. (laughs) Yes. That's Arthur Blake. I found his diary, uh, which is amazing. Uh, in part because, um, you, you can't help but sympathize for this man who uh, has to rent a horse by the day. The government doesn't even give him a horse. And he's patrolling hundreds of miles along the border of, of Washington Territory and, and British uh, Columbia. 
And so he'll hear reports at an individual town, you know, oh, we saw a Chinese person and he'll just be, you know, riding this horse, you know, for hours every day, hoping to happen to run into one. Uh, when he even even when he finds a Chinese person, unless he physically sees them cross the border, right. that is, get off of a ship in front of him or cross the land border in front of him, they can just simply say that they'd been here all along. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because there's no form of, of passport or identification to be able to tell these Chinese individuals apart. And so uh, he's often, you know, I tell a story about how he's trying to tell Chinese apart based on whether or not they're holding umbrellas because he got a tip that there's Chinese that crossed the border holding umbrellas. And so now he's he's out searching for umbrellas as, <laughs> to be able to tell the Chinese apart. Yeah, trying to do whatever he can, but it's not working. <laughs> a lot of Yeah, it's not working. It's highly unsuccessful. <laughs> so some Chinese people are, are definitely able to permeate um, this border and in this act of restriction. Um, But others are definitely encountering very real, very painful moments of violence um, in communities and in towns and in cities. And um, your third chapter is about the strategies that people are using in response to this violence. Um, And at one point you use the phrase scale jumping as one strategy in which um, Chinese people are trying to seek some um, solution or redress to, to the, to the violence and the trauma that they're experiencing. Um, Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? Yeah. So the, the central three chapters of the book look at a series of, um, look at the same moments of violence, focusing particularly on Washington territory and, and the violence that happens in Tacoma and Seattle. And I zoom in in some part in order to really get at the, the details of how this violence works and how the Chinese attempt to, um, to survive it and resist it. And so I start with the Chinese, and um, and then and then move through in this part uh, from different perspectives. So I start with the Chinese, and then move to the vigilantes. So the Chinese, they don't all react to the violence in the same way. And I think that that has a lot to do with class status. So the Chinese that have um, resources attempt to use all the resources they have in order to try to stay put in these communities because merchants and labor contractors had, had large stakes in these communities that they, they had set up businesses, they had invested, they had, um, relationships and networks and they'd often been in these communities for quite some time. And so it was definitely in their best entrance to stay put. And they found, you know, they did many things. You know, some of them went to individuals that they knew in town. Uh, for example, the sheriff, the the um, the mayor, and attempted to, you know, negotiate and try to stay uh, when they were threatened with violence. They also. Uh, went to, you know, some went to the territorial governor in Washington uh, trying to um, fight this. 
violence. But what struck me was that in actual moments of violence locally, even being a merchant didn't do a lot for you. That the, when there's an, a mob of angry white people telling you to leave the town, these Chinese merchants and labor contractors couldn't do much to stop them. And so they were driven out along with the working class people. Uh, but what was interesting to me was that the power that they were able to marshal was mostly on other scales, not in their local actions in which they could often appear very powerless. And this is the way that the story has been told before, a sort of a story of victimization on the local level. But what the Chinese did, which I which was very, um, it, it shows their understanding of, of sort of not just the local environment in which they were in, but sort of larger uh, political environment, was that they attempted to advocate for themselves at higher scales. So they reached out to uh, Chinese diplomats who then contacted the Secretary of State. Uh, they reached out to the Chinese government. And through these channels, through telegraphs, um, you know, headed to Washington, D.C. and San Francisco and, and um, across the Pacific, uh, those were the things that worked the best. Uh, and because through all of these moments of outreach, they actually spurred the, the deployment of federal troops to try to put down the violence in, in Washington territory. And so I, I talk about scale jumping and I define it as a, a using resources at a um, at one scale in order to uh, to work against constraints you find at another scale. So they're 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 working on sort of this national and transnational level in order to try to mitigate the violence that's happening to them in this very local setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and along with um, thinking of those different strategies and jumping those scales, um, some of these Chinese um, victims of violence are being stood up for by unlikely people. And I really liked how you included um, some stories of historical characters who we might not have thought would be pro-Chinese. Um, and there's one character in particular who I remember, which is um, this preacher, who is um, in where, in Tacoma or somewhere else? Yeah, in Tacoma. Tacoma. McFarland? Um, I believe so, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about him? Yeah, so I, I tried to – so there were a lot of um, um, people who tried to stop this violence other than the Chinese. Uh, they tended to be sort of the elites of Washington territory, people that stood in for law and order, um, although that did not include necessarily the mayor and the sheriff, but sort of higher law and order, and the governor, uh, the governor's wife. But I also talk about uh, the this preacher, McFarlane, who um, in Tacoma, what the vigilantes did was that they said they gave a deadline for when the Chinese needed to vacate town. So they gave a, a month's notice and said on November 1st, 1885, all Chinese must be out of Tacoma. And so this gave the Chinese some time to uh, advocate for themselves and to move some of their resources in advance. But it also 
meant that their their defenders, their allies, uh, could try to fight this. So uh, McFarland uh, preached in his congregation that the Chinese should be able to stay. He believed in the, you know, I think it's a lot of it is about a Christian evangelical ideal that the Chinese are um, convertible and that uh, that. American uh, Protestants should be engaged in in Christianizing the Chinese, both in China but also in America. And by Christianizing them in America would be a, a nice way to spread Christianity across the Pacific. And so he preached uh, to his, you know, almost entirely white congregation that they should um, not attack the Chinese. And in fact, when he started receiving death threats because of his position, uh, the newspapers reported that he started, um, that he just put two revolvers in his pockets and continued on his way, uh, visiting his parishioners as he normally would. Uh, and he, he was particularly upset because he learned that in his absence, um, some vigilantes had stopped by his own home and spoken to his wife and demanded that she relinquish their Chinese cook. I think that this gives a sense of, you know, these defenders of the Chinese often had some personal relationships with the Chinese uh, people. Uh, and in this case, it suggests that in addition to having converts in his church, he also had a, a Chinese cook working in his mm. home. Yeah, and one revolver in each pocket. You got to have one, yes. one for you, <laughs> right? Just you know, yeah, in case. Um, yeah, that's that's so interesting. You know, this violence um, breeds restriction, which breeds violence, which then leads us to total exclusion, right? Because now the government by chapter six of your book, um, is now trying to re-examine, okay, well, how, like this violence is getting publicized. We know about it. It's happening. Um, what has to change now in terms of the law and what has to change now in terms of our diplomacy with China? And in chapter six, you talk about those two things together, um, exclusion, and uh, diplomacy and imperialism. Um, so how do they go together? How do those stories converge? Yeah, so I think that one of the reasons that the Restriction Act in 1882 was as weak as it was and as experimental as it was, was, was because the United States was engaged in a particular form of diplomacy in China. And it's... Um, it's a form of diplomacy that I would, that I describe as as a cooperative open door. Uh, as a co-op, the cooperative open door was reliant on Chinese, on the Chinese government sort of playing along, and the United States um, negotiating many of. Uh, its trade agreements with China, as well as its immigration agreements. And so emblematic of the cooperative open door is the Burlingame Treaty of 1868, in which the United States and China agree to allow free movement between their two countries. Um, and in this very friendly um, treaty, which is also meant to encourage uh, trade. Although it is still an unequal treaty, it's still unequal, but it is an attempt to sort of woo China. What I found was that 
along with the turn to a stronger form of exclusion, was a turn from um, away from this sort of imagined ideal of Chinese. U.S. relations being binational, where this would be um, negotiated, what the relationship between the U.S. and China would be, and that immigration itself would be negotiated. That is a matter of diplomacy to figure out uh, how people will move between these two nations. By 1888, when the United States passes uh, the Exclusion Act, they are have decided that immigration should no longer be this binational process of negotiation with China. And instead, it's going to become unilateral. And Congress is going to simply legislate that the Chinese will be excluded. In order to do that in 1888, they had to, in fact, abrogate the Burlingame Treaty. So by passing the exclusion law, they've they violated this treaty and therefore threw it out of um, a full operation. This was a very aggressive act at the time. And I think that scholars haven't recognized sort of that that shifted the form of U.S. diplomacy in China when before the, the U.S. sort of was at least attempting to appear to be on and on par with with China and to, and to uh, cooperate with China. Instead, this is a very aggressive act in which the United States is is asserting its um, its superiority and its ability to do what it wants with the national border. And it's a dramatic change in our in our history because we have to remember that at the time there are there were not. Um, deeply established pattern of federal border control that was legislated by Congress. The the norm before this was to regulate the the movement of people along with the movement of goods in treaties. And so this shift is not just about the shift with China, but a larger shift about imagining how gatekeeping would occur. Now uh, it would occur um, through legislation by Congress. Yeah, and this definitely isn't the um, the last time we see the U.S. making this aggressive statement when it comes to uh, immigration and welcoming people or excluding people, right? It's like, we're going to put up the gate. We don't have to get the other country's permission or other people's permission. We'll just do it ourselves. Um, we certainly see that with the history between the U.S. and Mexico, I'm sure, with other countries, too. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in the the last chapter of the book, and then moving into the to the conclusion, you talk about um, Chinese afterlives. You call them afterlives under exclusion. Um, what is what is going on in the lives of Chinese people after we reach total exclusion in 1888? Well. Um, what, what I try to argue is that there are, we have to think about the afterlives of exclusion, which is very much still um, in effect uh, coming into the 20th century, but also the afterlife of this violence and sort of looking at these two together because they were sort of twin forces for the Chinese immigrants on the ground. And in that chapter, I try to talk specifically about how, you know, the, the border 
which we imagine as being located in a certain place, right? Along the Pacific and then maybe along um, the, the border boundary with Canada or on the south with the border of Mexico, that that border, as we imagine it, um, it, it is expands it expands way beyond that border what what the chinese experience so it expands in part because um that border around the nation becomes much harder and then much more difficult as the united states invests more and more money into actually keeping the chinese out but it's also that that border then um expands abroad as the United States starts to um, implement Chinese exclusion in its insular territories. So Chinese exclusion travels with the U.S. empire to Cuba, to Hawaii, and to the Philippines. And so um, this effectively means that Chinese exclusion is, 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 is its, its geographic territory has expanded dramatically um, in the early 20th century. And at the same time as the, as the border expands abroad with the U.S. imperialism, it also increasingly penetrates the interior of the United States, where before when Arthur Blake was riding around on that rented horse and he couldn't tell the Chinese apart, the, that has, has been replaced by a system of registering Chinese, forcing them to carry a, a form of certificate or passport with them at all times. And this essentially means that the border has become interiorized, that the Chinese can be stopped, at least in theory, anywhere within the United States and be policed about whether they should be in the nation. And so I argue that to understand this, we have to think about the border as being carried with each individual immigrant. Um, And that's why I focus on them as alien, as opposed to thinking about the border as fixed in a particular location. And as I'm trying to think about the effect of the border and the after effect of violence, I, I talk about how these two things are actually very hard to pinpoint in a very local individual scale for the for the Chinese. I, I look at um, sort of the long effects of the violence at, and how the Chinese, um, how Chinatowns have been disrupted or destroyed during the violence and how this can last for decades. For example, in Tacoma, the, the Chinatown and Chinese community there was completely wiped out um, expelled by through this violence and and never replaced. There is still not a Chinatown in Tacoma, um, and I try to get a sense of what this means for the Chinese that it forces them into um, even more mobility than they had previously experienced um, in order as strategies to continue to survive exclusion and expulsion. They become sort of highly migratory people. And despite the erasure of a of a Chinatown in Tacoma, Tacoma now does have a memorial of sorts that acknowledges the pain and the trauma of exclusion, right? Yes, it does. It's called um, a reconcil- reconciliation park. Reconciliation park. Is it the only one of its kind, or are there other sites around the U.S. West that have these as well? I think it's. I'm. I'm trying to think. It's the only one that I know of, and it's certainly, um, yeah, it, it is unique in which they they reclaimed a site fairly close to where a Chinese community used to live, 
and then built sort of a Chinese garden uh, that has has uh, placards and and information about the expulsion. It's sort of an it's a complicated project though because uh, essentially no one in Tacoma uh, claims any relationship to this violence. It was you know more than 130 years ago or about 130 years ago, uh, but it's interesting that even no one claims to be the descendant of any of these Chinese and no one claims to be the descendant of any of the vigilantes involved. And so it's seen as sort of reconciliation, but between whom? <laughs> There's no, um, it's, I think it's more about sort of attempt to remember this incident and, and not let it be forgotten locally. Right. And because it does seem to be the only one or very rare or unique, it, it points to our need which you do communicate in the book to keep the memory of this violence um, in ourselves in the present day. Otherwise that will just lead to um, a lack of acknowledging that it ever happened. Right. If we can't even trace who is, yeah, who, who the reconciliation is between. Yeah. I think that that's one of the reasons that we don't remember this violence the same way we remember other forms of racial violence, I think is in part because it was not nearly as deadly as the violence against um, Native Americans in the West or uh, the violence that sort of at the same time against African Americans in the South. And Dad, because this violence was disproportionately in the form of expulsion, it doesn't it didn't create large numbers of casualties. And I think that we often, when we're trying to understand violence in the past, it's a lot of it's about numbers, the number of deaths, the number of, of wounded. And so that this this episode, um, it's really more than an episode. It's a, you know, this one outbreak, but then all the violence that came before and afterwards for the Chinese has been forgotten in part because of the, the form of violence, but then also because there are very few um, descendants of the Chinese who will who talked about this in any way. It's, it's partially has to do with, you know, the success of exclusion that it um, made it very difficult for Chinese to have a second generation and to put down roots in America in the early 20th century. And so I think that the lack of um, the lack of the continuation of families created part of this absence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Um, I always like to ask authors about the process of actually writing this book and bringing it into the world. Um, So I have a two-sided question for you. So one is, what did you find really hard about writing this book, Um, whether it came to subject matter or the process of writing it? And on the flip side, what did you find really fun about writing this work? Uh, um, What was hard? I think, you know, so the topic of violence is hard. In in some ways, I feel... I feel an urgency to talk about this violence, to remember it, and to do more than remember it, to try to understand it and understand its implications for the, for the Chinese at the time, for our immigration policy now. It's all very important, I think, but it it's it's pretty depressing <laughs> to sit there and, 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 um, and sit with these sources, you know, the, the Chinese 
uh, describing what the violence that was inflicted on them, um, reading even from the vigilante's perspective what what they feel like they need to do. You know, it's a lot of hate um, and it's a lot of suffering. And I think it's very challenging when we write about violence to try not to um, sensationalize it or to make the reader into a sort of voyeur to, to watch the drama of it all. And so, and, and as a writer to sort of be able to both feel the effects of something so terrible, but also to be able to interpret it and, and give it a, um, a scholarly interpretation that will help us understand this history. So that sort of toggling back and forth between the, the emotional um, aspect of this and, and trying not to lose that, 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 what it meant for individual people's lives, and, and, and trying to be the historian and put that hat on was has always been very challenging i think i'm i i vacillate between the two um let's see and then what was your second question something oh well what did you was there something that you enjoyed about the process of writing or um what kind of helped you get out of those dark places sometimes what was fun or surprising or exciting about writing this work oh i think that i one of the things that I really actually enjoy about writing about um, Chinese immigrants in the 19th century is that, you know, these are people that did not leave much of a trace. They, uh, they, most of them were um, migratory, transient. Uh, many of them were illiterate. Uh, and then the, the, the state government, the federal government, and, and even sort of white society wasn't very invested in trying to uh, remember them or, or preserve anything about them. This is a creates a huge problem in the archive, that there just are so few sources that allow us to try to recover this history. Um, and I, I am very interested in that. Just the, it creates quite a treasure hunt to you know, and um, to both find new sources um, and to sort of creatively uh, interpret the sources that we have and get as much out of them as possible. So one of the things that I enjoyed working with in this um, in this project, you know, I, I used a lot of different kinds of sources, but one of them was um, maps. And so I, I use uh, Sanborn fire insurance maps. So Sanborn fire insurance company went around from town to town, uh, it, it's, uh, making maps of different towns in case so they can insure uh, buildings against fire. And one thing that I discovered sort of midway through my research was that along the way, they marked every building that was occupied by the Chinese. Uh, they didn't mark any other form of occupation uh, who was who was in these buildings, but they marked the Chinese, and I think that that was because of racially based assumptions that they would increase the risk of fire to be occupied by a Chinese person, and so that sort of source where on its face um, it's sort of a random bit of information was captured of the Chinese allowed me to look at uh, how these towns were. Um, changed by the violence. I could look at maps before and after incidents of violence, which would allow me to see 
you know, the Chinese occupation shifting and, and often sort of disappearing from these towns. And so that sort of trying to get as much as you can from these tiny sources was, was one of the things that, that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I enjoy that too. And how many historians love those Sanborn maps for all the things? <laughs> I know, it's true. <laughs> um, well, we should definitely be rightly celebrating the book you have out right now. But I always like to ask people um, if they're working on anything new that they're excited about. Do you have any projects in the works right now? Yes, uh, I have a few. One of the things that I'm thinking about right now is, um, you know, you know, thinking about the present and watching the sort of undocumented movement today has made me think a lot about uh, other forms of unauthorized status in that existed in the country before the present. You know, we talk about the undocumented um, and the dreamers as all sort of very present day, and the dreamers in particular is very young. But I've been thinking through. Um, what sort of predecessors existed to these um, these individuals that have to live with unauthorized status in America. And so I'm looking at um, Chinese who came over in violation of the Exclusion Act and what that meant, not just as they crossed the border, but as they came into the interior. What did it mean to be, you know, they didn't use this term at the time, but an undocumented Chinese person in the early 19th century. And so um, that's one of the things that I'm dipping my toe into right now. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, I can't wait for that. That's great and definitely builds upon this book we're talking about today. Yeah. Well, thank you, Beth, so much for joining me on this podcast today. I really appreciated the chance to um, read your book in its final form and to have known you the whole time it was getting written. <laughs> so, thank <laughs> Likewise. You so thanks, Lori. Yeah. Thank you for being on this podcast today. Thank you all for tuning in to the New Books Network. I'm Lori Flores, your host for this episode. And we've just heard from Beth Lou Williams, the author of The Chinese Must Go, Violence, Exclusion, and the Making of the Alien in America out from Harvard University Press, available right now. I invite you to like and follow our New Books Network social media pages on Twitter and on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. 